Bitcoin is a perfect match for renewable energy. It helps monetize the build out of renewable energy. It helps monetize the operation of renewable energy. It helps to stabilize the grid. And we need it to happen at massive scale, massive scale. Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Level, a company finally delivering on the promise of a Bitcoin bank. Yes, a bank on your phone where you can deposit, spend and hold Bitcoin. And you can also do this alongside a traditional dollar checking account. You can deposit your payroll into your account as a US user, and you can even spend your Bitcoin from your account via your MasterCard debit card. I have been testing it out. I've been playing with the app, and it is everything I've ever wanted from personal banking. And there's so many more updates coming. They've got some big updates coming in February, so keep an eye out for that. Now, if you do want to find out more, if you want to go and check it out, please head over to Level, which is LVL.co, or search for Level, which is LVL, in the Google or Apple app stores. Also, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now we are well into the football season and you know what? Things are going all right. It's been pretty good season so far for Liverpool. Tottenham struggling as ever. We always like it that way. Now, if you are interested in football, if you do want to make a bet and if you want to use your Bitcoin, then sportsbet.io is the place to go. But they don't just cover football. They also cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up is Compass Mining. And Compass aren't just a sponsor. I'm a customer of theirs, and I am mining Bitcoin with them. Do you know I've been mining for over three months with them now? I mined about 0.4 Bitcoin, which is pretty cool. I'm going to try and do updates on this every month. But with the price of where Bitcoin is, I'm approaching having, I think, about a third of my mining equipment paid off. I love that I'm mining again because Compass has made it accessible to anyone as a Bitcoiner to get out there and start mining and contribute to the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded and anyone can do it. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility and Compass does everything else for you. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to start mining, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up today, we have Gemini, who I am now using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And you know what? We're coming up to a year and I've still not sold a single sat through Gemini. I am only buying Bitcoin. I am a hodler. That's all I'm doing. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined training view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Morning, Troy. Morning, Peter. Thank you for flying. Thank you for having me on the show. It's not a problem uh, if Nick Carter gets in touch and he says, you have to talk to this person, 
it's uh, it's never going to be a no. Well, that's pressure. Well, Nick, Nick's. Uh, Danny, is Nick the person who's been on the show the most? Outside of the regular people, probably. Yeah, I think Nick's done like 10, 12 appearances. He's a regular, smashes every time. But Nick's a good friend. So, yeah, if he says, uh, talk to Troy, then we're going to talk to Troy. Talking over dinner last night, I think we might trigger a few people today. Hopefully. But this, uh, this is a subject I do care about. Uh, I am, well, we're going to talk about a few things. Um, but we're definitely going to talk about the environment. Uh, which I care about, and I'm also a massive fucking hypocrite. But we will get into that. Uh, but you're an old Bitcoiner. Did you tell me 2011 you got into it first? 2011 is when I, I started in Bitcoin. Yeah, I think it was the end of school year. I'm a professor of philosophy at uh, Reed College. And uh, when the batch of papers comes in at the end of the semester, all of us faculty freak out and look for something else to do. And for me, I found Bitcoin. How? My uh, my girlfriend then, wife now, pointed me to some article, right? And she was just like, this is an interesting thing. And uh, I found, with a quick Google search, found the white paper. Okay. And uh, didn't understand everything in the white paper. But then I found the Bitcoin talk forums. And, you know, it's the same story everybody has, really. You. Everything else in the world disappears, and you think this is the coolest thing you've ever you've ever seen. Maybe not everyone has that story, but a lot of Bitcoiners have that story. Just a cool idea. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I got absorbed, and of course, I had lots of questions and objections, and uh, cycled through all of those in like two, three weeks, and uh, wasn't satisfied with the answers I got from the Bitcoin community, but it was enough to pull me in do you remember the kind of things you were questioning yeah i mean well first of all i just didn't understand the basic concepts proof of work difficulty adjustment you know it's, it was just all new to me uh but i was worried about 51 percent attack uh, i thought that would be super easy to pull off at the time it would have cost like uh like the price of one one bonus from a senior vp at Goldman or something. So I just didn't see why the banks weren't already doing it. Why a country like China wasn't already doing it. Well, if you think about it, we had Bill Barhai in here yesterday and telling us how he gave away a thousand Bitcoin because he loved Bitcoin. But at the same time, I don't think he'd thought, well, in eight years time, that's going to be $40 million. That's going to be $42 million. And I think probably Goldman Sachs, if anyone did see it, just dismissed it and thought, yeah, all right, nerds, you're never going to get this through. This isn't going to take off. It's just amazing. It's incredible that Bitcoin made it. <laughs> I mean, I thought at the time that the probability of it succeeding was very low, but it happened. I mean, we're already on the moon. It's already happened. I'm not saying there isn't farther to go, but from my perspective in 2011, like this was less than 2% likely that we would be here talking about this, that Bitcoin would still be functional and valuable um yeah maybe i should share my my socks <laughs> I don't know yeah if you hold on what were these two million dollar socks <laughs> not two million two hundred thousand dollar socks yeah these are these are socks that cost me five bitcoin per pair <laughs> and i have at least a couple dozen pair i still still have a drawer full of these socks i wear them almost every day in the winter they're very nice socks 
They're made of alpaca. They were sold by some alpaca farmer in New Hampshire who has like over a hundred of my Bitcoin, right? If <laughs> it still it, has it. If it still has it, right? Hold on, hold on. So you, there were five Bitcoin a pair. Yeah. And you bought 20 pairs. More than that. Well, that's... Uh... I bought them over a period of a couple of years, right? So some I bought for more than five, some I less, bought for less than five, you know, depending on the price of Bitcoin. But there just weren't a lot of things you could buy in the early days uh, with Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and alpaca uh, socks was one of them. They're darn nice socks. I mean, yeah, I don't know if you can... I saw See, them last night. You saw them last night. Yeah, right. that's a different pair, right? I've got yeah. a whole, I got a whole drawer full. Like I said, the I fact. gave them away as gifts. I should have given away Bitcoin, right? Give somebody five Bitcoin. That's a heck of a gift. They might have lost the Bitcoin. They still it's, have the socks. It's true. Some people I gave Bitcoin in the form of I don't know if you remember this company, uh, Blockchain.info. Yeah, of course. Right, but now it's Blockchain.com, and I talk to people who don't even like. It was the big. I think I think Andreas was working for them for a while. They had a really nice site, right? And they had a way you could give people Bitcoin, send send an email, and it was like a voucher for Bitcoin. And um, so I sent that to a lot of people. Some people created a wallet and cashed in their voucher uh, by taking their keys and take, taking custody. Other people just left it in voucher form. And uh, recently, some of those people reached out to me like, can you help me get that Bitcoin that you sent me? Like that, whatever it was at the time. Like um, a paper wallet? No, it was just an email with a hyperlink to something on blockchain.info's site, which if you went there, they would help you set up a wallet and you would have some Bitcoin in it. So I was giving people like small amounts, like 10 bucks worth of Bitcoin. This is 2013. Um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, those hyperlinks don't work anymore. Ah. It's blockchain.info. It's blockchain.com. Like they're all just 404s. I, of course, I wrote people at blockchain.com. They're like, yeah, we, we don't have, we don't have those, whatever that was. It's gone, right? So half the people I gave stuff to have some Bitcoin. Half of them got nothing. Not your keys. Not your coin. Hard lesson. Some got socks. Some got socks. Some got socks. I owe Danny. I owe Danny for the socks I'm wearing today. Do you want me to pay him in Bitcoin? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I gave some people Bitcoin. I gave someone Bitcoin in my family who who recently sold it to start a plant business. Right? They started their own business, like yeah, growing, selling exotic plants, and it's cool. It's like I wish I had given everybody Bitcoin. I don't regret any giving. Like, of course, I gave Bitcoin to the EFF. Of course, I gave it. Um, you know, I donated where I could. I my travel. Expedia used to take Bitcoin. Did they? Yeah. <clears throat> I regret not keeping my Bitcoin. Tim Draper's got some of my Bitcoin. Nice. Yeah. He's got some of my Silk Road Bitcoin. Anyway, we all have those stories, I right? Know, I know. We I all know. we all do. Uh, and, and I just have a more, more painful version than most. So you started investigating. You started mining, right? I started mining 2011. Yeah, I fell down the rabbit hole. It was fascinating. I'm a philosopher. My interest in Bitcoin really was just the idea itself was awesome and cool. And that's kind of what philosophers are all about. That's why we that's why we get out of bed in the morning. Um, but also I lived through the 2008 financial crisis and <clears throat> I was as angry as anyone else about that. Were you that. exposed to it? Well, 
a lot of my students went to work for the banks and I saw kind of this, I saw students on the incoming side as freshmen, very idealistic, wanted to make the world a better place. I saw them all being funneled into finance, which finance is a fine profession, but it's not for like 80%. It's not philosophy. It's not philosophy and it's not for like 80% of, you know, elite students or whatever. <laughs> so I just saw this kind of talent drain, but also, uh, yeah, narrowing of human possibility. I kind of be, I didn't, I grew up in rural Michigan. I didn't know anything about the world of finance. The whole world kind of creeped me out and then eventually kind of pissed me off. I did peer to peer lending. I realized I wasn't a bank. I didn't have access to the Federal Reserve discount window. I couldn't fractional lend. Um, I used e gold. <laughs> I saw e gold fail, right? So I was primed for this idea. And then I fell in love with it. And then, yeah, I wanted to mine. And I didn't know anything about, I'm not a technical person. I didn't know anything about, I didn't even know how to use Linux. It couldn't do like anything. So um, it, was, it, it was a lot of work to set up miners and figure this stuff out. I was tipping people in Bitcoin to help me. <laughs> I tipped a significant amount of Bitcoin. Don't really regret that. Was it mainly command line back then? It was all command line. All command line. Yeah, for mining, yeah. Okay. So yeah, and I was using Bitcoin QT software, which was pretty user-friendly. That was user-friendly. Okay. But uh, I had two towers running in my basement uh, with graphics cards, four graphics cards each for about a month. You know, not because I wanted to make a ton of money. I didn't see this happening, <laughs> but just because I wanted to be a part of it. I, I sensed there was some historical movement. And um, even if it all failed, which I thought it would, it was thrilling. The idea that we could disintermediate this entire industry of finance, which was, you know, predatory and limiting and parasitic, that we could disintermediate it with just some code in an open source community that would open open financial possibilities and freedom to everyone in the world. That was I just wanted to be a part of it, kind of like when you travel to the Holy Land, you want to grab like a rock from you know, the temple or something. <laughs> it, was like, it was like this religious desire to participate in and collect something, right? Almost more than getting rich. I didn't really think that would happen. <laughs> so I wanted to mine just to be a part of it and see how it went. And you were mining one Bitcoin a day. I was mining a lot more than that. I was mining one Bitcoin a day when I quit. Um, oh. So I started, and I don't know how long I mined exactly, one to two months, something like that. I started on my MacBook Air. And then I, like all of the laptops we had in the house, like I had my wife, of course, running one on her machine and I, any machine I could find, I ran one on my machine at work. But were, were there pools back then or were you just? Yeah, there were pools. And were you mining in a pool? Yeah. Okay. I, yeah, solo mining was already. Done. Yeah, done. And so was really CPU mining. It was very quickly done. and. Uh, hash rate was spiking madly as people switched over to GP GPUs. And in fact, even just getting GPUs, you know, there are charts of like the most efficient GPUs and the most efficient ones were always sold out. So a lot of people were doing what I was doing. I, I bought some AMD stock at the time too, because they were making the graphics cards. Um, and then, yeah, after about a month and a half, I stopped mining Bitcoin um, for reasons that I want to talk about. Uh, 
because I did some back of the envelope math and I realized the block reward is 50 Bitcoin per block at the time. I realized that uh, if Bitcoin's market cap ever reached the market cap of gold, or if it did right away, that basically the amount of energy we are consuming as a, as a network would be astronomical and um, devastating to the energy markets and to the planet. <laughs> basically, I had an Elizabeth Warren moment like in 2011. Um, That's not an Elizabeth Warren moment. You actually did the work. I actually did the you math. You did the math and maybe the math was wrong, but you did the math and, and you came to a different conclusion. Uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, doesn't do the math. Uh, oh, most man. likely has people in her ear, influential people, and she just wants to spout shit as she usually does and attacks things as she does without any basis of fact or reason. So you didn't have an Elizabeth Warren moment because she's a I, dick. I stand corrected. You are. Um, yeah. Elizabeth Warren, is. it's very disturbing to me. Here's someone who's very, very smart, someone who's been inside the academy, someone who has the same suspicions of banks exploiting people that I do, right? Someone who's in a way primed for Bitcoin. I know, man. And what you're saying is exactly right. Someone got in her ear and the, f the facts are like irrelevant. It's like we're in this postmodern reality where like how what bitcoin is actually doing to the environment and for the energy system doesn't matter well i've brought it up on the show a few times there was a moment a few years ago we made a four-part documentary series about steve mnuchin uh who is a another vulture uh vile human being and during that process i watched the senate uh, hearings where like, whatever it is where he has to be approved uh, they go through you know they get questioned to, to take their role up in confirmation hearings yeah something like that and she went after Mnuchin and she went after how the White House had become uh, a wing of Wall Street and I was like yeah she yeah. gets it okay I, I like I like Elizabeth Warren and I'd mentioned this to other people and they said no she's fucking crazy forget her but like I was like no th this bit here I like this this is somebody who gets it but obviously clearly she doesn't or doesn't want to I think Elizabeth Warren is um gone i think yeah. she's lost she's i think done. she's committed already get out of here and that's the problem people make up their mind and commit and then they double down yep and uh, bitcoin is surprising this rabbit hole experience that i had it, it was intensive energy intensive intellectually intensive and guess what i got it wrong i didn't my back of the envelope math was was wrong do you know what was wrong with it do you remember the math yeah i mean first of all i i wasn't thinking about the having and the rate at which Bitcoin's price would grow. If we're at 6.25 Bitcoin per block right now. I was calculating at 50 Bitcoin per block. So the whole way. Well, I, yeah, I wasn't really projecting out in the future, right? I was just like, what if we hit? You, you got to put yourself back in the 2011 mindset. It, it, it was such a crazy space to be in. Uh, you had like Dennis Porter style bulls <laughs> who were like, we're going to hit the market cap of gold in like six months, right? Of course, that was crazy. But it only seems crazy in hindsight. I mean, the whole thing is crazy. It's Bitcoin is crazy. Like, it's just crazy that we spun up this currency out of nothing and it's worth almost a trillion dollars today. So what's what's so much crazier about it becoming, uh, whatever, five times that 10 years ago? It's not actually crazy, right? But of course it didn't happen. I mean, Satoshi programmed the having just right. Um, We've had adoption 
and the having coordinated perfectly um, so that we, we don't have you know, we we don't have we didn't have market cap of gold at fifty Bitcoin per block, right? Let's just uh, make the point that David Zell is here watching and being a noisy bastard in the background. <laughs> You're right, David. Don't worry. Anyway, I, I what else was wrong with the math? Well, um, I didn't think about uh, I I didn't think at all about Bitcoin mining's role in renewable energy and what kind of consumer of energy Bitcoin would be like, I just, I just thought it would be the average consumer of power, right? So whatever the mix of power was back then, which is much, much less green than today, I just thought Bitcoin miners are going to use that. And in fact, if the price goes to, uh, you know, f whatever, $5 million per Bitcoin, I just thought people are going to mine with whatever machines they have with whatever energy is available. Whereas in fact, Bitcoin miners, and Nick Carter makes this point all the time, are non-rival consumers of energy in a standard market. I, I, I heard this uh, Canadian miner call miners the, uh, the dung beetle of energy, and I love this. They go down into these price crevices and find the cheapest energy in the world, and that energy is energy that other people don't want. It's stranded, it's wasted, it's produced in the wrong place or at the wrong time. So mostly they're not adding to the energy load, but they're using power that would otherwise be wasted anyway. And I, like, I hadn't appreciated that at all. I hadn't appreciated what that pattern of, you know, dung beetle-ish use of energy would do for renewables, which is make them profitable. My, you know, the main problem for renewables is that they have fluctuating intermittent supply that doesn't match when we need power. And so they have excess power much of the time when the sun is shining, when the wind's blowing, and when the grid is not at max demand. And Bitcoin miners come in and use that power and pay for it. <clears throat> Even though they're paying very low rates for that power, it makes it profitable to build renewable plants. And of course, you can build renewable plants in advance of grid connection because now there's something to do with that power while you wait for the grid to hook up. And I didn't realize what a very, very long waiting line there is to get hooked up to the grid. I didn't know any of this stuff about the energy markets, right? I just did this back of the envelope math calculation. And how did you think it would fail? Do you think it would just be regulated out? <laughs> oh, I didn't, do, I didn't stop mining because I thought it would fail. I stopped mining because I didn't want to be part of it. I didn't want to be oh. part of the mining. Like, I actually care about <laughs> the consequence, right? So it was like, no, it was sort of like a dystopian vision. And I think this dystopian vision is what freaks people out, people like Elizabeth Warren. What you imagine is like, there are people like us, speculators, desk jockeys, trading. And we don't even see the, <laughs> we don't even see the distal effects of what we're doing. But somewhere in you know inner mongolia there is a jerry-rigged mining setup next to a dirty coal plant and it's a dangerous miner that catches on fire and you know smoke from coal is being belched into the air and this is happening because of our desire to get rich <laughs> you know, that's this is the view from the left right a bunch of desk jockeys trading trying to kind of beat the capitalist system, not seeing the effects of what they're doing, actually leading to massive emissions. And if you look at the 
kind of ridiculous projections. Mora et al., the paper in climate nature climate change, you know, Bitcoin alone will push us over two degrees where we might hit tipping points, right? And all of this happens sort of unconsciously. No one even intends it. That's the kind of nightmare vision that I also had in 2011, in whatever, you know, whatever, six, seven years before that paper was written. Uh, and I didn't want to be a part of it. No, go back to the reason I'm in Bitcoin in the first place. It's a beautiful vision of the future. It's it's utopian, right? It's free to money. It's empowering. It's disempowering of the predatory institutions. And all that gets spoiled for me if it means uh, I'm going to be Nick Carter boiling the oceans. <laughs> and I thought, I, I thought, yeah, well, th this could happen in the, if, if it's successful. I mean, at the time, of course, it's using almost no energy. But like if our wildest dreams came true as Bitcoiners, and this became global reserve asset, then it would boil the oceans. <laughs> that was my calculation. And yeah. I was like, I don't want to be a part of that. That ruins my, that, that just takes the joy out of it. Did, did you run this by anyone? Or was this just like on your own, you made this choice and you're like, I'm done? Entirely on my own. I, I was not out as a Bitcoiner until 2013. And then I kind of came out to a few friends. You got to understand how Bitcoin is in the academy. Mm -hmm. Like my being on the show right now automatically associates me with disreputable people, right? Oh, Not say, the alt-right. Uh, the alt-right, exactly, exactly. Well, so, is, that's only happened in a few places. And like every time one of those articles comes out that is Bitcoin is used by the right, Bitcoin is used by white supremacists, we all just kind of laugh and dismiss it. I don't think that's ever really, no one's really properly managed to attach Bitcoin to that successfully. It's a garbage narrative. It wasn't alt-right in 2011 and 2013. That's not how people thought about it quite then, but it was like terrorism, drugs, assassination market, right? It was just generally like illegal stuff. Yeah. And um, so when I did tell people, friends, like that I was into Bitcoin in 2013, they were like, oh, Troy, I didn't know you were into drugs. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm not really. I mean, Bitcoin kind of is my drug. <laughs> you know, philosophy is my drug. I'm sort of on drugs all the time. I like ideas and I, they give me a high. So they were like, but then why would you be into this? And, you know, even I had a very, a, a very prominent celebrated economist tell me, well, Troy, just sell it right away. Sell it already. You've done really well since 2011. Get rid of it. Right. Um, but, but it was disreputable. Of course, economists hated it because it doesn't fit anybody's theory of money, which of course made me like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, well, how is it surviving? What is it? How is it here? The existence of this thing is a problem for your theory. To me, that's exciting. When scientists find problems with their theory, that's the moment of discovery. You don't double down in defen defensiveness there. That's the moment where it's like a physicist finds something they didn't predict, you know, like, like the orbit of Mercury is a little bit off and you're like, hmm, maybe that's an effect of relativistic uh, influence, you know, like anytime you find something that doesn't fit your theory, that's joyful. That's the time where you're ready. And so for me, the fact that this didn't fit anyone's theory of money was thrilling. But for economists, not so much. <laughs> right? Anyway, it's just disreputable across a number of dimensions. And the white supremacy thing is new. I, I was just really dismayed to see The Economist run with this story. You know, S Southern Poverty Law Center released a report pretty cool they're tracking wallets in a way it shows how easy it is to track bitcoin wallets right they 
if people post their own identity with a Bitcoin wallet, then it's easy to set up a spreadsheet watching that wallet and linking it to that identity. And several of these alt-right groups did that. So it's an open ledger. We could track that. <laughs> it's 600 wallets. It's, you know, 10 million bucks, maybe less than that. A lot of it, when I've looked through the actual addresses, it's Stefan Molyneux, right? It's like a lot of it's one guy. And, Stefan Molyneux. I know. Okay. It's just it's just like, okay, yeah. th there are how many wallets in existence? I mean, most of them aren't active, but it's like 200 million or something wallets that have had coin. And you're looking at 600. So yeah, I wrote a piece in Bitcoin Magazine just saying, this is insane try to smear this entire uh, currency and this community with 600 wallets, especially given that the dollar is the ultimate white supremacy coin founded on conquest, then slavery, then Jim Crow, then redlining, you know, and then, and then systemic incarceration. <laughs> so it's just, this is white supremacy coin well, sitting you, in your wallet. You can add global oppression to that as well colonialism and global oppression as well. It's just weird that given given the left's constant critique of that, that suddenly when it comes to Bitcoin, just forget all about it. And it's like 600 wallets. This is what this is what Bitcoin is about. That is bullshit. But this is a symptom of America. Whatever is the issue of the day, one goes one one side takes one position, one goes the opposite. We don't have it to such extremes in the UK and Europe, which is why it's always surprising to me when I come here. It's like, okay, this is going to be the left. Okay, this is the position of the right. Whereas I don't see any scenario where Bitcoin is even con considered like conservative or or liberal in the UK. It just I just don't see that happening. But here, I know one's going to take a side and then the other are going to go against them. It's just, and it's probably just because a few Republican politicians picked it up first, but it's not working. The people who are trying to make it a uh, conservative right movement, it's failing because there are people, there are people, uh, Democrat politicians, and there are people on the left who are also recognizing the value of Bitcoin. So it, while it has a right lean at the moment, I don't think they're going to work. They're not gonna manage to do this, thankfully. I, I really hope you're right. Um, I am a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, which is a newly formed uh, think tank. And our loyalty is to the truth. I think in the end, Bitcoin is going to be like the internet. And it will be utterly absurd when we look back and see the attempt to politicize it. Everyone's going to be using it. It's going to be part of life. And... Uh, and what we need is the truth. We need information that is not spun um, in order to make wise policy decisions. Right? Well, and also because if someone like Elizabeth Warren is going to be putting Democratic voters at a disadvantage who may agree with her or see her point of view and, and choose not to investigate or adopt Bitcoin. So it just puts these people at a disadvantage. This just kills me. Okay, this just kills me because they saw the like the one of the one of the most recent Krugman rants, right? That is guy. that guy. That guy. Is that you know Bitcoin has disproportionately is disproportionately represented by marginalized groups, right? So it's like twice as many 
um, Black Americans as white Americans own cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. And um, also it's more represented by Hispanic American investors. So uh, you'd think this is a good thing that Bitcoin's not for just white dudes, but it's actually even in the US, not even looking at the global picture, even in the US, it's very, very diverse, much more than traditional finance. And it's not an accident, right? It's, it's because traditional finance, again, is traditional finance has been exclusive of these populations. They don't trust it. Okay. But what do you make of this story? Krugman, what Krugman makes is that they're at risk of getting wiped out when the bubble pops. So he sees the downside risk. He doesn't see the upside gain that Bitcoin as the most successful asset in existence has lifted the welfare of the communities that have invested in it. And that has been a diverse group of people. That's wonderful. And if it still has a lot of headroom, which I think it does, then those communities also stand to benefit disproportionately right now, unless they get talked out of it by their politicians, right? Exactly. I think it's so patronizing and so insulting that Krugman wants to guard basically plebs against risk and reward. Only the VCs, only the people that live here should have access to this massive upside of capitalism. Capitalism comes with a huge upside, which the capitalists participate in, right? But if you only let accredited investors into it or people like Krugman, <laughs> you're going to exacerbate inequality because guess who? Guess who's represented among in accredited investors? Like that is the global rich. <laughs> it's all, by definition. So you you're have gonna, to be in the club. Yeah, to, you, have, you have to be in the club to partake. It's just, it's just like. A, I can't believe he's doing this. It's both insulting, it's racist, it's systemically racist. Think about what racism is. It's like promoting inequality. That's what he's doing. Of course, he's like regarding against, regarding against downside risk. Yeah, but we get to take risk. It's a free country. This is America. We get to take, we get to evaluate and take risks. That's part of self-sovereignty. That's part of what draws you to Bitcoin. Some of some of the joy of Bitcoin, some of like touching that rock at the temple mound or whatever it's like your own hardware wallet or for me early on it was paper wallets right and paper wallets and just like holding this like number and saying this is a key which i can use to sign transactions and nobody can stop me and this uh censorship resistance permissionless network right awesome i can i can transfer value but also i can put my labor into it and nobody can stop me, you know? Um, yeah, it, that's part of my humanity. That's part of everybody's humanity, the ability to do that. And to exclude marginalized populations from that, given our history in this country, is disgusting and immoral, right? That's, I mean, so yeah, I-, I, I There's I, no role. Vile. There's no role for Crookman in the Bitcoin world though, because he, he, he doesn't understand that <laughs> everything will have changed. And he won't have reevaluated his position. It's so it's so beautiful. Here's somebody who's won the Nobel Prize in economics. As an academic, we don't have Nobel prizes in philosophy, right? That doesn't exist. It's a good thing too. It's political, but it, it's like okay, he's really bright. You don't win the Nobel Prize in economics without being very very smart. But he's talking completely out of his specialty, 
economists have no business speculating on the prices of assets. That's not his training. It's not his expertise. And when people hear him do that, he has discredited himself over a decade. He's been wrong at everything. And has he apologized to all the people he's made poorer? Well, he was wrong about the internet as well. <laughs> he was wrong about that I mean, too. yes. That guy. Has he ever owned up the responsibility? As a scientist, if you make a prediction and it's wrong, you fix your theory. You don't double down and try to make your theory true by leaning on levers of power to make it illegal. How weird is that? You know, I'm like, so as you're a biologist and stuff is happening that you don't predict, it wouldn't be weird to gotta go out there and try to change nature to make <laughs> your theory. That's kind of what's happening in econ. It's the weirdest thing. Well, I asked somebody about this because Ray Dalio did shift his position a little bit. Yes, he did. And I asked somebody about this. I was like, it feels like Ray Dalio is the only one. And, and I can't remember who told me, but they said it's not just Ray Dalio. But what you have to understand is what is their basis of decision making? Skin in the game. Well, Ray Dalio is managing money. <laughs> if if he's wrong, if he's wrong about this, you know, he he has he's accountable in terms of money he's managing for other people and they're gonna be he's like why are you why were you wrong so he has to evaluate in a different way crookman is about reputation and when it's your yeah. reputation it's slightly different i mean it's taleb i i gotta give you gotta give taleb credit for this general insight about academics versus investors he's right skin in the game makes for a different kind of cognition you think differently when you have something at stake do do i hold bitcoin in full disclosure yes i do and uh, would I know the same things that I know about Bitcoin if I hadn't? No. That getting involved with it, mining it, holding it made me learn more because I was motivated, right? I didn't want to risk capital. I'm not rich. I didn't want to risk what little capital I have on something utterly ridiculous. And um, yeah, I think buying something when you're studying it is a good idea because like it gets the juices flowing, right? And it's like Crookman Kru is doing this detached thing, which gives him objectivity. It also makes him, like you say, w what is his upside? His upside is everybody saying you were right, Professor Krugman. Um, his upside is not helping the world, making making things better for other people. That's not his upside. His upside is not even getting rich. So yeah, the world of finance, like people react to prices and reevaluate, right? Like see something like, okay, I think in 2011, Bitcoin was a risky bet. It's not 2011 anymore. It's, it's 2022. This thing has survived 13 years of attacks. Not holding Bitcoin is now a risky bet. There you go. There you go. I agree. So, so okay. But you stopped. You made this decision. I did. Yeah. You're like, uh, I don't want to be part of this dystopian uh, future. Yeah. You stopped the mining. Did you keep the Bitcoin? Did you sell the Bitcoin? What did you... I frittered a lot of it away. <laughs> Almost, I mean, it's painful to revisit this, you know. But yeah, like I bought all these socks. I, I, I bought on my travel. I, I, I used Expedia to book my all my academic conferences, um, hotels, and flights. You know, you can imagine if I you pay for all that out of your Bitcoin stash in 2013. That's yeah, a yeah. lot of Bitcoin, right? It, it costs a lot more than socks. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I kind of I frittered it away, but I. And I, and I withdrew a little bit from the Bitcoin community. I have a busy life. I had two kids in that time. I got married. I moved twice. I had life expenses. You know, life is yeah, yeah. complicated, right? Bitcoin was just this one thing for me. And I have to admit, you know, when we had a bull run or whatever, I would get interested again. Like, so 2013, I became very interested as we ran up to whatever it was, $1,000 a coin. 
1200 maybe we touched. And then 2017, of course, I got interested again. I was so busy in 2017, I didn't have time to really, really get into it. But, um, it, you know, I, my interest waxed and waned, but I kept, kept a toe in it. Well, and that's I, what happens, right? My, mine was uh, 2012, 2013, but just using the Silk Road, watched it go up in 2013 to 1200, watch it drop, and uh, I was like, oh, it's, it's done, this thing's over. Yeah. <clears throat> and I used to go back occasionally, what's the price? Oh, it's like 500, oh, it's like 400. Oh, this thing's dead, just watch it. And I remember like it bottomed out and then started to go back up. I was like, huh. <laughs> Okay, but it's going to drop again. Uh, it's not dropping. It's going back up and back, and it went back up and up and up. And it was only there was a trigger for me. Luck, well, I don't want to say lucky because of the what happened was fucking truly dreadful. But my mom getting sick, wanted to get a cannabis oil. Turned around to my dad saying, hey, "You remember I used to buy stuff on, on the internet?" And it was like, "Yeah." So you know that was a trigger to get back in, and then I was back in. But what was the what was your trigger to get back in? Like, because you, I would say now, because you're sat here, you're back in. I'm back in. And you wrote to Nick, you're back in. And you've written your paper, you're back in. But what was the trigger? Well, it was really um, my partner in writing a lot of these things, Andrew Bailey. He posted something on Facebook, like about Bitcoin. I, he's a philosopher at uh, Yale NUS in Singapore. And um, I knew Andrew from some metaphysics conferences. But I saw this post where he, he, he had like a Cassaskis coin or something on his Cassasius coin, yeah, Cassasius. Yeah. I didn't know. I never know how to pronounce. It. I think it's Cassasius. Okay, Dan Cassasius. I, I hadn't even heard of them. Dan Held introduced me to them. Yeah, I, I didn't buy them at the time because I thought that's the most insane security risk. <laughs> Why would you take a private key from? How would you trust somebody not to have just copied that key before they wrapped it in this coin shape thing? Right? It seemed to be utterly absurd. But now, of course, they're collectors' items, and I think it was that coin or something that looked like it he had on his porch and i was like whoa so that means andrew was in bitcoin for a while and he's in he's a philosopher i've never talked to a philosopher about bitcoin and then i found out andrew at base he's uh two partners um bradley rettler and craig warmke both of whom i also kind of know through philosophy and then they have like a research collective called resistance money as a resistance dot money if you want to look it up they've written a bunch of papers they've written some philosophy papers and i was like this is amazing. These are two worlds that I'm into that are meeting. And, um, and when, that, when was this? This was maybe maybe a year and a half ago or something. Okay. So, Start yeah. of the pandemic kind of time. Yeah, it was a little bit into the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. And, and and then I started talking to Andrew about my worries about energy and emissions and diving diving deeper into that. Because Andrew's thought very deeply about Bitcoin for a long time. Uh, he's been in since like 2013, uh, but he's been in, he didn't just dip his toe in. He's been in like the whole time, seriously, and thinking deeply about it. They have a book forthcoming with uh, Rutledge under contract, like the philosophy of Bitcoin. It's sort of comprehensive um, politics, philosophy, economics, interdisciplinary approach to to Bitcoin as a as an intellectual subject matter. And they're building, they're building something in the academic sphere. And that was exciting to me. I would like to be a part of that thing they're building. I think the academy eventually is going to be studying Bitcoin very, very seriously and blockchain generally. And they're going to be like centers, interdisciplinary centers, which have economists, philosophers, political scientists, computer scientists that are devoted to studying Bitcoin blockchain 
uh, through all of their disciplinary lenses, right? It's going to flip. Like it, it, <laughs> some of it is price related, right? But if we stick around for another decade and this becomes like the base layer of finance, you know, the academy will come along. They say that science progresses like one funeral at a time, but it'll happen a little bit faster than that. And there's going to be money coming in to pay for these kinds of things. Anyway, I just saw this as like, this is where philosophers need to be thinking about this. Economists need to be thinking about it, right? And then I... And then thinking about the energy issue, what what really triggered me was watching Kevin O'Leary at Bitcoin Miami uh, last year. Um, I saw this presentation and I just flipped out. Um, he he had something like my my orientation of thinking: How can I own Bitcoin? How can I hold it without? contributing to the climate crisis, contributing to carbon output, is but, that... But there is no climate crisis. Ah, thanks, Peter. We 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 should touch on that. We should. Um, I put out a tweet once that I, uh, I said, you're an idiot if you uh, don't believe in global warming. You're an idiot, yada, yada. And it wasn't very popular with some of my <laughs> Bitcoin friends, associates, people in my cohort. Um, I interviewed Catherine Hayhoe, who's a climate scientist in uh, Lubbock, Texas. She's at Texas Tech, and a uh, fascinating interview, real, really eye-opening. Um, but what followed were the experts in climate from the Bitcoin community who disagree with her and disagreed with my statement. Um, and I am a hypocrite. I'm probably a, one of the larger emitters of emissions from the amount of flights I make, and I you know, fully declare myself, but. We're all hypocrites on this issue. But I do believe there is a, a climate issue. I don't know how serious it is when it hits us, um, but I think there's enough evidence out there uh, that points to there being an issue. I don't know if it's solvable. And um, I suspect m part of the reticence, reticence? Yeah, from some people to believe in it is um, they worry about centralized government roles in trying to fix this, which we can fully understand because of the shit show of the last two years. But but yeah. the, but the people out there who, Troy, if you say I'm worried about climate change, they're going to argue about that point, whether it's real or something we need to think about. And they might even say we should burn more fossil fuels, more fossil fuels. I think Steve Barber wants us to burn all the coal. Uh, yeah, I think we have to separate out different issues that get pushed together. Yeah, one is just a matter of atmospheric chemistry. Like, does CO two and methane lead to a warmer planet? And that's like that's a closed book. I mean, when Exxon figured that out forty years ago and hit it, and they're now fully on board. If you're fighting against that, you, it's you've lost. Ex Exxon's own scientists <laughs> figured this out a long time ago. And, and I want to say, you know, it's something like, who's, the, who's this conservative commentator, Ben Shapiro, who says, like, that facts don't care about your feelings or whatever? A atmospheric chemistry doesn't care about your feelings. It's chemistry. Well, there was a time <laughs> where, where, all, where the execs and the scientists of the oil companies uh, were a consensus that burning fossil fuels uh, would uh, warm up the planet. Who was that guy we interviewed? Nathaniel... Witz no. No. And uh, Nathaniel Rich. Yeah, Nathaniel Rich. Um, he wrote a book. Uh, look up the book he wrote. Uh, he wrote this really good book, uh, something like the, the the decade we lost the argument, or uh, talking about 
it was there was consensus. Absolutely, it was it's so weird to me back in the seventies. It's so weird to me to see to. Have, I mean, I'm old, so I remember politicians of all stripes talking about climate change and it's in global warming and its potential. Right? It's weird to see it become now a partisan issue. I don't see climate change as a partisan issue. It, chemistry isn't partisan. Again, it's not, it's not, it doesn't care about your feelings. It also doesn't care about your ideology or political affiliation. It's, not, it's chemistry. Well, is, is there a reason for that? Because, like I say, there was consensus. There was, I mean, you know, there was general agreement. But yeah, I mean, the book I would recommend is Naomi Oreskes' Merchants of Doubt. You know, the, there's a, there was a concerted effort, well financed, to sow um, doubt and confusion about the science. You found the book? Yeah, it's just uh, Losing Earth by Nathaniel Rich. What's the subline? There's a subline, the decade. The subline's just uh, a recent history. Yeah, so that that's a really interesting book. I've oh, here you go. Sorry, the uh, the decade we almost stopped climate change. Yeah, the decade. So there was consensus, and I, I, I can't remember the exact details, but they then became, uh, it became politicized. My suspicion is because uh, the people who most would have been impacted would have been perhaps conservative states because that's where perhaps more of the oil production was and then you get the special interest groups the lobbying groups etc etc and it became politicized yeah but the consensus was there with the scientists who were working for the oil companies i mean we had a consensus about um we've had a consensus about other kinds of science science that were environmentally related like you know refrigerants um, and we've made international treaties and dealt with it. You know, the ozone layer is no longer shrink or the ozone hole is no longer growing because of the actions we've taken collectively, right? Obviously, carbon's a bigger issue and harder to tackle. But we had a model of total consensus across all parties and like all senators voting for that stuff, all representatives voting for it. I think also some of the predictions, there were predictions that were been made. But I, there I, were ridiculous predictions. But if you look at the models, there were also predictions that were right on the money, even from a hundred years ago when we first figured this out. Like the predictions are kind of on the money, so you know, yeah. So certain individual outliers will make a prediction that's off. I mean, modeling is hard. Modeling something as complex as the climate is extremely hard. Of course, um, it's a chaotic system. It's a chaotic system. So your models are always going to be imperfect, you know. Uh, but the general trend is is dead, is dead on, right? Um, but let's just separate out the issue of like, is climate change real? Is it caused by humans? I think yes. Um, a lot of people in this community are going to think no. What I have to say doesn't depend on what you think on this. And in fact, I think whether you own Bitcoin or what you like, Bitcoin shouldn't depend on it at all. And I also want to say just that the, the climate change FUD around Bitcoin is utterly misguided, apart from my idea that I want to talk about today. Mm -hmm. You know, the new CoinShares report that came out, they estimate global emissions of the Bitcoin network as 0.08% of all emissions, 0.08%. So if you eliminate the Bitcoin network, you wouldn't make a difference at all to, uh, to climate change, right? And meanwhile, we have trillions of dollars of subsidies flowing in the directions of fossil, fuels com fossil fuel companies. That, that is unquestioned, while political attention is on you know, the, the greatest instrument of freedom <laughs> in finance that's ever been created. So I don't mean in any way by expressing concern about climate to to be endorsing what gets called in the Bitcoin community the ESG narrative. 
I also don't mean to be endorsing any regulations thrown Bitcoin's way. I think Bitcoin is an extremely powerful tool for helping us transition to uh, a renewably based and sustainably based economy. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you as a Bitcoiner to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. It's over four years now, and I'm still using that same Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up is BlockFi. Now you can get up to $250 in Bitcoin when you join BlockFi. They've launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card provides the easiest way for you to earn more Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every purchase with no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards and every purchase. But if you're interested in finding out more and you do want to take out that bonus, you want to get that $250 in Bitcoin, then please head over to BlockFi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it's Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks, there are just too many ways to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with a Carter multi-sig wallet, you get to take custody of your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you get to distribute into different locations. And this is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more about this, I have been a customer for over a year. You can hit me up in my DMs or drop me an email. Happy to answer your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, we have my new sponsor to the show, which is BCB Group, who provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB2. They heard about my difficulty with finding a bank, a reliable one that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. So I've moved all my business banking across to BCB, and you know what? I could not be happier. It is so nice to finally be dealing with a bank which understands my business and understands Bitcoin and isn't putting hurdles in my way. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. And they also have this amazing fiat network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this. If you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out, then please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is BCB. G-R-O-U-P dot com forward slash Peter. And also, it's funny, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I agree on the, the science that's been agreed amongst those atmospheric scientists, climate scientists, that global warming is an issue. It is caused by humans. I don't, therefore, but I also think, was it 0.8% or was it... 
It's a small it, amount to eight, fix a eight large... parts in 10,000. Yeah, it, but it's, um, it's an acceptable cost to fix the money which has so many beneficial consequences to the world so yeah and even like the i think it was abby martin who was uh who's made a documentary uh, regarding the u.s military i think they're the largest largest pollutant i think it's 4.6 billion gallons of of gas they're burned daily by the u.s military 4.6 billion per day and that doesn't account for all the other things that's not their electricity that's not that's just gas yeah i think that's right and it's just nuts um you know the s p is twice as carbon intensive as bitcoin right now if you're like oh i don't want to own bitcoin i'm going to just buy spx okay you just doubled your carbon output and um and i'm happy to throw in the show notes a uh, reference to um you know, an academic paper with that conclusion that we can reduce the carbon intensity of our investments by substituting Bitcoin for a portion of S&P portfolio, significantly reduce it. So I, I, it's so frustrating to be in this position I'm in. I think climate change is real. I think it's human caused. I think it's, uh, I think it's a crisis. And I don't think Bitcoin is where we should be looking to solve it at all. It's like the the hundredth thing on the list of things that you would look to to solve it at the same time and and i and i think bitcoin is i think bitcoin is in a way i'm just written an op-ed with um one of the other fellows at, at B, bpi um, margo pais um arguing that we it's a, it's a response to elizabeth warren and it's like elizabeth warren is worried that bitcoin mining uses too much energy she should be worried that it uses too little we need bitcoin mining to burn to use more energy. And and the reason we do is because here's how we solve climate change. <laughs> the only way we have a chance at it, we have to electrify everything. Uh, Saul Griffith has this book called Electrify. She says, the first step is to basically swap out all of the ways in which we use fossil fuels in the economy, not in generating electricity, but just like internal combustion engine in your car, like oil heaters right? Gas water heaters, gas heating in your home. All of that stuff has to stop. It has to be shifted to electrical power. So imagine that's like a major, major overhaul in economy. That has to happen. What happens when you do that? You create tremendous demand for electricity because now you got to run cars with electricity. You got to heat homes with electricity. You got to heat water with electricity. Where does that electricity come from? Well, you can't burn coal to produce it or you've just undone all of your progress. You have to make it with sustainable, sustainable means of production. So what is that? Well, it's wind, solar, hydro, nuclear. Yes. Can it all be nuclear? No. Nuclear is too expensive and is the most centralized form of energy production. It requires the most permitting. I'm sorry, the US does not mine backyard stuff. We're not going to build a gazillion nuclear, nuclear plants. Yeah, maybe when we get the small reactors, it'll happen, but not right away. It's very expensive. It's very centralized. It's not going to happen at scale. We're going to need, we're going to need wind and solar to carry the brunt of it. They're cheap, and they're getting cheaper by the day. But they're not reliable enough. We've seen what's happened in Germany, where they've been relying on uh, a combination of uh, historically, and I, I stand to be correct on this, but they have a mix. But 
they had nuclear. They also had uh, renewables. They started to decommission their nuclear plants, and now they're having energy difficulties. Okay, this is where Bitcoin comes in and fixes it. Okay. Okay. So first of all, first of all, the the people who care about this cannot shut off fossil fuel production or use before they have provided a robust alternative. That's freezing people out of their homes. That's, you know, that means energy prices skyrocket and people are hurt. So it's just immoral to to do what's what's being done. Where where environmental groups will just go after fossil fuels directly and here I mean, you know, yeah, I'm with I'm with uh Marty Benton, Steve Barber, right? Yeah, we need to keep burning fossil fuels because I don't want to like freeze people out of their homes and the system that we need to build up to replace it. We have to build that first before turning off the fossil fuel pipe, not after. Like, that's insane. I mean, <laughs> that's inhuman. So so what do we do? How do we solve the problem of robustness? Uh, because renewables are intermittent. We overbuilt. We overbuilt. We build a shit ton of renewable production. And uh and, and and then we need batteries. That's part of the plan. Um, so you you fill up the battery banks and then you empty them. But batteries are expensive and it's hard to do at scale. We need baseload generation, and that's going to come from nuclear, which is going to be on all the time. And then we need Bitcoin mining. How do we incentivize a massive overbuild of our power infrastructure? How do we make that massive overbuild so that it's robust? How do we make that pay? Because there isn't demand for that much power. We make Bitcoin the standard for yep. the world. Yes, we do. And we, we mine Bitcoin with all the excess power that comes from the overbuild. Huh, I see what you're getting at here because, right. Okay, because if Bitcoin accelerates its growth in value, miners are incentivized to build out their mining plants. Therefore, we're incentivized to build out the energy generation that's it. And if Bitcoin doesn't grow fast enough, this doesn't happen at the scale we need. International Energy Association says, once we trip, we're, we're going to need to triple to quadruple our electricity production when we electrify everything. Okay. And then IEA says, in order for that to work with renewables as the bulk of power production, we need to multiply our flexible load, it's called, flexible load on the grid by tenfold in order for that to function. Right, because because you know uh, wind power is only there when the wind's blowing. Solar power is only there when the sun is shining. Um, we need consumers of energy that can monetize that excess energy and make it pay to build out these new facilities and overbuild so that we don't run into energy scarcity. Okay, so uh, we need to multiply by tenfold the flexible demand, flexible load demand on the grid from where it is now by 2050. That's not Bitcoiner numbers, that's IEA numbers. And, you know, Nick Carter has made this point really well, um, Sean Connell too, that Bitcoin mining is the best flexible load. It is the most flexible. It can turn off. In a way, it's because of the way Bitcoin works. The search that mining is, it's a search for a certain kind of number. It It's perfectly random. So what you know how it is when you're five minutes into into a block search, you know, what's the expected time before the next block when you're five minutes in? 10 minutes. 10 minutes. That's a trick question. I know that because I think it was Charlie Lee put out a uh, put out the um, question on Twitter. Uh, he said, 
if you're I think he did it as nine minutes and he put it as a multiple choice how long till the next block ten and I minutes. think he, I think he put well uh, uh, one minute or 10 minutes and I being an idiot went for one minute but it's always 10 minutes so if you think about it as a minor if you haven't found a block and you're nine minutes in and you turn off your machine because there's demand on the grid and you want to I haven't even said what flexible load is it means that you you, you can respond to grid demand yeah. so if there's you know this is happening in Texas right now it's a winter storm the miners turned off their mining mining machine so that the grid would have enough electricity right that's their flexibility and of course, they sign contracts with the utilities that pay them for this kind of flexibility. But you, suppose you're nine minutes into looking for a block and you need to turn off. Are you are you sinking the first nine minutes of your searching? No, because the probability that you'll find a block in, in the next minute is exactly the same as it was the minute before. There's you're not like three. You're not nine tenths of a way into a process which you now have to cut off. But other forms of energy use are all like process-based. So if you want to shut it down, you can lose everything that you've done up to that point. So it's a fundamental feature of the protocol that makes Bitcoin flexible. It's the total randomness of that search. So Bitcoin miners are attenuable. They're interruptible. Uh, you know, attenuable meaning like you can turn them down like a dial. And uh, this means that you know utilities can use them to, to sync the frequency to exactly 60 hertz, or whatever the grid needs, right? So it's a, it, they sell these ancillary services back to the grid. Bitcoin is a perfect match for renewable energy. It helps monetize the build out of renewable energy. It helps monetize the operation of renewable energy. It helps to stabilize the grid. And we need it to happen at massive scale, massive scale. I mean, point, okay, go, go to the total energy use. Right now, I checked it this morning. Cambridge's estimate, and, and, and there's a six-fold range in the aim, how much, there's a six-fold range in how much energy Bitcoin is using. But 0.29% of all primary energy was the number this morning, right, from Cambridge. That's just not big enough for what we need. <laughs> we, we, you know, we're not going to get a tenfold increase in flexible load. N not all of that will come from Bitcoin mining, but we're not going to get much increase at all in flexible load from Bitcoin mining if it's 0.29%. Uh, we need it to be much, much bigger. So I think Bitcoin mining, this is just quite apart from my own idea. I think Elizabeth Warren is wrong that, the, that it's using too much energy. It's using too little. It's so funny. It's the exact opposite. Yeah. None of this is intuitive. This isn't stuff I knew about in 20, 2011, right? I had to like research and read and talk to people. Um, none of this is obvious. I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like forest management, you know, like you you think we got to stop forest fires it's like no you got to start them so so that we have a controlled burn right uh it, it, or it's another analogy i have is like bitcoin is like i've already used dung beetle but another one is uh, possums so i grew up in rural michigan possums would eat chickens right so people are like and they're gross looking they look like large rats i mean some people say they're cute but a lot of people think they're disgusting so people just killed possums and uh, I think this is what's going on on the left right now. Bitcoin is like a possum. People just want to like stab it with a like a pitchfork and kill it. It's gross. It's associated with tech bros. It's associated with crime. It's associated with all the kind of riffraff they don't want to be associated with, right? But what we know now about, about possums is that they eat ticks. They eat like gazillions of ticks. <laughs> and we've got a serious tick problem in this country.
right? We've got all these tick-borne illnesses like Lyme is spreading across the country. And this is serious and it's a serious health problem now. They're on the West Coast now, these ticks. I've had friends who had Lyme and su suffered with Lyme disease, right? And it's like, when I read about the life cycle of the tick, it's really complicated. It lives on these like, you know, uh, small rodents. It, uh, it, it, and then, and then the chief predator being like the possum, I was like, oh, that's amazing. I never would have, of course, guessed this just like watching possums. But then I realized like, yeah, that's like Bitcoin mining is like the possum, right? <laughs> of, of, of energy. It's like, oh my God, you see it eating a chicken. You see some cold, you know, you see somebody burning coal to mine Bitcoin. You're like, oh, Bitcoin's eating chickens. Let's get the Bitcoiners. Let's get Bitcoin. But then you don't realize it's like, it's also harvesting like millions of ticks and solving a health crisis, or rather we're creating the health crisis because we don't have enough possums. You know what I mean? So I had the same kind of shift with Bitcoin, a totally non-obvious thing. And I wish Democrats and the people who are right now ganging up on Bitcoin for its environmental reason would look at the whole ecosystem of energy and the environment. Look at the whole picture, right? Rather than just like, here's how much it emits. It's like wrong. We need to be thinking globally. We're facing an a existential crisis in climate change. You all believe that, politicians. What do we do about it? How do we fix it? And what is Bitcoin's role in either fixing it or making it worse? Start there with your frame, with the thing you believe in, and and not looking at just like how much CO2 is emitted. It's a negligible amount, uh, but it's also like you're going to miss the forest for the trees. I mean, this Bitcoin could spawn a massive transformation of energy. I mean, imagine we triple energy production in this country. We need to do this. Um, quadruple. Just imagine what that's going to look like. We're going to have wind farms, solar farms, or rooftop solar, you know, spread throughout. And we're going to have mining co-located with it. What about heating? I basically think there shouldn't be any heater that's not a miner. <laughs> Why are we heating with anything but miners? Right? Why not? You're going to use whatever power you already have, make heat with it. Think about methane. Uh, right now, um, where a lot of global warming comes from methane. It's 80 times more potent than CO2 over a 20-year period. Uh, CO2 lasts longer than methane, but it's not nearly as potent. Where's the methane coming from? Farms? Yeah. A lot of it comes from farms, but number one is oil and gas. Um, is it permafrost melting? A little bit. It's mostly oil and gas. Bitcoin fixes this, as you know. Miners setting up, the, they're the dung beetles setting up <laughs> to burn methane on site at oil wells, this byproduct that would ordinarily just be flared inefficiently and turning it into a less harmful gas. That's really important for the climate, right? And on and on, like Bitcoin's total role in this ecosystem of energy and the environment is ill understood. It's complicated. And that's the picture that we really need to paint for lawmakers is to explore the total impact of this technology, not just one thing, not just, oh, there's a miner. There happens to be a miner in Pennsylvania who's burning coal to mine Bitcoin. Yeah, it turns out that that coal is actually waste coal that's already releasing um, it's already releasing CO2 and it's a stronghold 
they're actually paid by the state to, to clean it up. It's a more complicated story. But we will hear isolated stories of energy use that puts pressure on a local market or revives fossil fuel burning. We're going to hear isolated anecdotes like that. But the big picture is not those anecdotes. It's the role of Bitcoin in the energy ecosystem. And can it help us create a new world, a new economy that keeps us globally under two degrees where we might hit tipping points? No one knows exactly where the tipping points are. It's uncertain, but it's kind of like it's kind of like Bitcoin mining. You're just like gambling. We're gambling with the tipping points. If we we might have already crossed them, we might not cross them until three degrees. But you know, a lot of a lot of climate scientists speculate they're around two degrees. So if polar ice caps melt, sea levels rise, you know, a lot of bad things happen. Um, food chain issues uh, arise. Um, you know, plants don't deal well with that kind of heat. We have water issues. We've got then climate migration. We've got, and of course these. These things are already underway in some degree, but we're talking about a catastrophic kind of um, phase shift in, in, in how life goes. How do we avoid that? What's Bitcoin's role in that? That's, that's what I want to explore. One of the things that interests, interests me most in Bitcoin right now are all these unintended consequences of somebody trying to create decentralized money. So when I first discovered Bitcoin, it was peer-to-peer -peer money, money you can't switch off. There's a censorship resistant. I was like, that is cool. But out of that, we now have this, I did the show with Jack Marlers the other day, talking about an open monetary network and what that means for the ability to move money around the world instantly and for free. The impact that has for people who are outside of the banking system or living in under authoritarian rule. Um, so we've got all all that. We've got everything to do with what a deflationary asset and putting yourself on a uh, Bitcoin standard means and what changing your time preference, how that impacts investment or malinvestment. We've now got this as a potential to fix issues with climate. There are so many of these unintended consequences. I believe they're unintended consequences. I don't believe Satoshi, when he came up with Bitcoin mining on CPUs, thought eventually we would solve the climate crisis. It is truly fucking incredible the amount of things that are coming out of bitcoin and there will be more there, there are going to be things that are going to be discovered in the future i almost feel like danny we need to start cataloging these things and make a show about this alone but oh it's awesome yeah you know this is why bitcoin itself is a very simple thing right in a way it's a simple code you can read every line of it it's not super simple but i mean it's doable it, it's it's simpler than the banking system it's a lot simpler right but its consequences are impossibly complex because it, it it interfaces with human beings it interfaces with our economy with the, the climate with, in, in, in ways that could not be modeled or anticipated and um, yeah like you know, what what happens when you give unstoppable undebasable money and the ability to move it around to everybody in the world i mean it's like sci-fi it's like a sci-fi prompt you know, write your novel. It, it, it's <laughs> we're all speculating. This is part of what's so exciting to to me about being in Bitcoin. Is nobody really knows what what this will do. You, it's impossible for a human being to know it. And for you as a philosopher, doubly exciting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So okay. So where do we go with this then? Because this isn't exactly what we spoke about last night. It's right. almost like you kept this from me because we didn't have a conversation about this. We had a conversation about 
me and my guilt about climate change and wanted to contribute and you gave me some idea about how i can uh help make a contribution towards trending bitcoin mining greener yeah okay so this is the idea that got me and i'll try to keep it as brief as i can okay this is the idea that got me back into the scene i mean it was talking to andrew that that, that led me back into thinking about bitcoin but why it actually came public as a bitcoiner set up a twitter account and started tweeting about this i saw a way to hold bitcoin with no carbon footprint as an individual as an institution as a nation that people hadn't thought of yet or weren't talking about and i saw other ways of other people trying to do it like kevin o'leary like this company viridian and i think those ways are bad and so um well, well, what are their ways and why are they bad? okay here's Kevin O'Leary's way, which this is the thing that got me going at the Miami Bitcoin conference last year. Um, he, he, he says it, uh, that the coins that exist already that were mined with coal or natural gas or just grid mix, he calls those blood coins on an analogy with blood diamonds, unethically produced, contributing to climate change. But the coins that are mined with green energy, like let's say something from BitFarms, I'm mined with hydroelectricity in Quebec. Uh, those are those are green coins, okay? And then he's trying to arrange for green miners to sell green coins at a premium for people who care about climate change and they don't want to hold coins that have a carbon footprint. Well, that's fucking stupid. It is. It's not only stupid, it's also an attack on Bitcoin. Yeah. And it won't work. And it won't work. I'll buy the blood coins because they're cheaper. There you go. <laughs> but what struck me about it was that it was just bad. First of all, it's an attack on the network because it's an attack on fungibility. And fungibility is something we don't compromise on because money is fungible. If Bitcoin is money, it has to be fungible. But also, it struck me as the wrong way to account for the carbon produced by Bitcoin miners. So here's like three methods for accounting for the carbon of Bitcoin producers. The one we'll call origin accounting, one we'll call transaction accounting, and the other one maintenance accounting, okay? So origin accounting says you take all the carbon that's produced by a block and you assign that carbon, responsibility for that carbon to the block reward at that time. So you produce a certain amount of carbon, you know, running Bitcoin miners, during a 10 minute period, all of that carbon gets assigned to the Bitcoin that are awarded in the Coinbase transaction, the block subsidy reward at the end of that 10 minutes. And then responsibility for that carbon sort of traces whatever the future of that Bitcoin is. And all Bitcoin traces back to some Coinbase event, right? It's weird to think about this, but what is your Bitcoin right now? It's just a history that connects an address to a Coinbase transaction or many Coinbase transactions. Just for people who don't know, a Coinbase transaction is the block reward for a mined block. Yeah, the, the block reward is like the, the reward that goes to the miner. Mm -hmm. And it's called a Coinbase transaction. Yeah, people mess it up because we have this company. I know. <laughs> um, unfortunate. Unfortunate. Just, just for those who don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, so in a way, you can think of your coins as like a genealogy. You know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. You know, that's what the Bitcoin, that's what the, 
that's what it is. It's a genealogy, although it's a kind of curious genealogy because you can't, when, when coins come together and then come apart, you can't tell which coin now traces back to the pre-split. So there, it's not quite a genealogy, but it's kind of like that. Anyway, that's carbon origin accounting. You assign like the responsibility for carbon to a coin, and then you trace the future of that. And whoever holds that coin, it's like they bear the responsibility for the, the carbon that produced that. Coin. How do you assign that? Well, I think that's what Kevin O'Leary was doing, right? He was assigning, he was sort of assigning greenness to any new coins that are mined in a certified green way, and then calling all other coins non-green. Which would require those coins in some ways to be marked or flagged. That's right. Every coin would basically be marked. Okay, forget that. But you talked about mine, uh, marking each coin with its carbon history? Y yeah, each coin kind of has its That's history. That's not going to be popular. I mean, it's the information is there, in, in the in, in you know it's already there. Okay, why do, why do it? I'll, I'll go with you. Okay, so um, here's one problem with this approach. I, my coins were mined in 2011 with very little energy, right? So if we're really doing carbon accounting by the origin of coins, uh, my coins would be very very clean and use very little energy, but. This doesn't reflect the reality of what's going on. The fact that I have held these coins over a decade means I have kept the price of Bitcoin higher than it would have been if I didn't hold. And that makes the block reward more appealing for miners right now. Another way to think about this is, what's the function of price in Bitcoin mining? How much of Bitcoin mining happens because of the price of Bitcoin? Well, it's, it's all, all of, it. of it. It's all of it. Yeah. Okay, who is responsible for price? Why is price where it's at? Hodlers. Hodlers, exactly. It's the it's the fact that we're holding and not selling. So we holders are responsible for basically all of the emissions that are happening right now in the Bitcoin mining network. Because they happen in order to get that 6.25 Bitcoin reward. And that reward is worth something because people are willing to trade uh, Bitcoin for either US dollars or for electrical power or whatever at the rates that they are. And that's because we're not selling. We're not selling. We're not fucking selling. Yes. Thank you, Max Kaiser. <laughs> yeah. So the maintenance way of accounting says, you know, if you own some certain percentage of Bitcoin, like if you own 1% of Bitcoin, then you're responsible in an ongoing way for 1% of all emissions right now. And that's my preferred method of accounting. You aren't responsible, but. I understand what you're saying. <laughs> right. Like like that's your that's your footprint. Yeah. Just like, you know, when you buy any good or you take a flight, you have a carbon footprint. You want to know what your footprint is? Don't look at where your coins came from. Look at your percentage of ownership right now and the mining that's happening right now and in the future that's happening because of what you own. And think of it this way, every owner of Bitcoin, every hodler is fungible with every other. Like any one of us could sell and of course, we have different amounts we could sell, but we all bear equal responsibility in proportion to our ownership, right? So maintenance accounting says basically all the, the carbon gets mapped to hodlers in proportion to the amount of Bitcoin they own. Okay. And then finally, transaction accounting. This is what Alex DeVries uses, digit economist. This is utterly absurd. This maps all the carbon to transactions. So you look in the block 
And you say how much carbon was produced in mining this block. And then you look at how many transactions there were in the block. And there could be like 10. And there's no, like, it, it could be very few transactions. Then you would, you would divide that carbon by like 10 and assign a tenth of it to each transaction in the block. But it misses the Lightning Network, which benefits from it. Yes, absolutely. So Ma maintenance is the most obvious. Yes. This is what leads Alex DeVries to these absurd, you know, two months of household electricity use per Bitcoin transaction. That's because he's got to map the carbon, all the carbon that's being produced by Bitcoin. He, he's got to find transactions to be the bearers of that carbon. That's just fucking ignore him. Which is just, yes. But that's what Elizabeth Warren quotes. That's what the 70 environmental and social advocacy groups quoted, like this per transaction number. So transaction accounting sucks. Origin accounting sucks. It's maintenance accounting. Okay, so there will be people who completely disagree with you and don't give a fuck. Fine. But I do. So if I'm Troy, okay. I agree. I I want to ensure the maintenance of my coins is as green as possible. How do yeah. I, how do I do this? Okay, good. So this is once you realize that the way you incentivize the way that you create carbon by holding Bitcoin is by keeping the price higher and then incentivizing people to mine right now. And you know how much of that you're responsible for, which is kind of your percentage. The the same percentage you hold of Bitcoin. That's how much mining you're responsible for, the same percentage of all mining. Okay, for the sake of math, I don't mm -hmm. own 1% of all Bitcoin, but just imagine <laughs> I did, Yeah, what would I do? You would do, here, here's, the, here's the suggestion. You would do 1% of all mining with sustainable methods. You would do it yourself. So it's like, look at how much mining you're incentivizing, do that much. That's only gonna work for people who can mine or want to mine. Yes. Okay. So because like for example, we want to get Bitcoin into the hands of millions of people. But at S nineteen Pro now it's fifteen thousand okay. dollars or whatever. Uh it's not gonna be easy for everybody to go out and do that. Let me just back up first of all and make sure I explain how this works. Yeah. And then we'll come back to the question of how to do it. But I first of all I want to explain just kind of why this would be carbon neutral. So here's the idea. I have this image of a milkshake, right? And there's one milkshake. That's the block reward. I think of it in daily terms. It's like 900 Bitcoin a day right now. Okay. And then there's straws in that milkshake. And the straw like diameter is proportional to the hash rate you have. Okay. That 900 is fixed. This is what's cool. It's a single market. It's perfectly competitive. It's like nothing that's ever existed. It's zero sum. So if you have, let's say 1% of all Bitcoin and you start mining 1% of all mining, that's a certain size straw that you stick in to this milkshake. You know, I'm thinking of the Daniel Day-Lewis, there will be blood. Have you seen the film? I've of course seen that right. film. So it's like- We were debating him the other night. We were having a question of a whole film and uh, Q&A between the three of us driving up from LA and we were discussing Favorite film, best uh, film, film we've seen the most. Favorite actor, and I had a favorite actor, but I said he's not the best actor. My favorite actor, Sean Penn, but I said he's not the best actor. The best actor is Daniel Day-Lewis. I think yeah. objectively, I think anyone who disagrees it's with crazy. him is wrong. I mean, it's crazy, and I'm not gonna do an imitation of Daniel Day-Lewis, but, but it's like my straw as this green miner, you know, goes 
all the way across the room and it drinks your milkshake. <laughs> and that the milkshake is one thing. It's that 900 Bitcoin per day, right? And so the way that actually works out is that we find box blocks faster than 10 minutes when we add new hash rate. And then we have this um, difficulty adjustment, which happens periodically to bring us back on 10 minutes. What happens is because I add hash rate to the mining network, difficulty goes up. And then suddenly you have to spend more hash rate to get the same amount of Bitcoin as you were before. But every time, this isn't just true for me, this is true for any miner. Any miner adding hash rate to the network makes it more, less profitable for every other miner in the network. Hold on. Am I connecting the start of this conversation with the end of this conversation in that this will also accelerate the price, accelerate the investment in mining, and therefore accelerate the investment into green mining? Yeah. Is this like, is this the trick? This is the trick. So there's two goals of this thing. Yeah. Ah. One goal, the one goal is to, in the related, the one goal is there's, there's, there's like 16 trillion dollars of capital right now that's locked up in ESG frameworks, environmental, social governance, whatever. People don't, people who are sitting on the sidelines and there's some big accounts that are sitting on the sidelines that would like to own Bitcoin, but they don't want the carbon footprint associated with it. And they're committed not to creating, you know, worsening the climate crisis. So one goal is to take that barrier to those investors in Bitcoin, whether it's retail investors or institutional investors and eliminate it by giving them a way to own Bitcoin that is carbon neutral. That would make number go way up. Okay. And when number goes way up, then mining expands. And when mining expands, not only is it going to expand, but if people are using this mechanism, it'll expand in a green way because that's the prescription. So there are two things that happen at once. Number goes up. This capital is freed from being locked in ESG constraints. And the number two thing happens is that we get massive build out of mining infrastructure and green energy infrastructure in, because we have people investing in it. And these people are able to own Bitcoin. Yes. And it becomes like this self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like yes. a, it's a feedback loop. Yes. Huh. Right. I'm not sure if you did this on purpose last night. Either you explained it terribly or you <laughs> held back on the juice for how this works. Because last night I was like, I mean, Troy's cool and interesting. This is going to be a great conversation because he's a philosopher. But you need that whole front piece for this second bit to work. You only explained the second bit. Yeah. There, well, there are many ways in, right? It's complicated. Uh, th there are people who just want to hold the, this is the way in okay and, and you <laughs> take your word for it no no because you 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 were teaching me a way to make my bitcoin green i was like yeah i could do and I, I maybe i will and i'll turn around to witter compass and say make sure my miners are in a green location and call i make a slightly uh, a small contribution to this but not everyone's going to do it not everyone can mine and really we're 0.08 anyway it's yeah. negligible. It's negligible. But actually, when you tell the whole story of why we need to in massively increase energy production for Bitcoin and why that solves climate issues yes. because it builds our infrastructure. Yes. And then you bring in Daniel Day-Lewis and his straw. 
the whole thing makes sense. <sighs> Danny, back me up here. Tell me, it, am I mad? Are you on the same journey as me? Uh, yeah, we were speaking before the interview as well and cleared some stuff up. And I think you should try and get into that. Because, okay. Because what you were explaining was why um, there's some sort of corporations in the space already that are trying to offset their sort of carbon footprint, but doing it in the wrong way. Can yeah. they offset with Bitcoin, with green Bitcoin? Yes. This is it. So they can fucking make money. Yes. They can hold Bitcoin, mine Bitcoin, and offset. And okay. incentivize investment. <laughs> so now you know oh why, you, now you, you understand my frustration, okay? So I yes. had this idea and I'm like, what? okay. I had this idea, or so I had no voice. I had no way to reach anyone. Well, you got this now, whenever the fuck you like. <laughs> this, is, this is seven months of work to get to this table <laughs> for this idea. So this means a lot to me. Huh. Yeah, Gemini, it's one of your sponsors, I know. One of my sponsors. Okay. Gemini did, a, I think, a wonderful thing. I know they're going to take shit in the Bitcoin community for it, but I think it's wonderful. I'm, I agree, sponsoring Bed Bedford, my football team. <laughs> That's was, a wonderful thing too. It was a wonderful thing. <laughs> what did no, they do? No, no, they, they bought carbon offsets to offset their holdings. Yeah. And their calculation was the same as mine and Andrew's uh, up front, which is it's maintenance accounting. What, what offsets did they buy though? Did they like plant trees and shit? Yeah, but they bought really high quality offsets. So looking into this market of offsets, it's bullshit and scammy. Like you think shit coins are scammy? Like offsets are the worst shit coin. <laughs> I mean, like, can I tell you a quick story about offsets? My work, Mass, uh, Massachusetts Audubon Society, they own a large forest, a very large forest in Massachusetts. They sold carbon credits to fossil fuel producers on the grounds that they would not chop down their forest. Of course, it's the Audubon Society, right? They're there for the birds. They're not going to chop down their forest. But they were able to say, you know, we're preventing chopping down the forest and therefore we'll sell your... So there's no carbon actually sequestered by that move at all. But then fossil fuel companies get to claim that they're ESG friendly and now they can get ESG investments, right? That's bullshit. Um, Okay, Gemini didn't do anything like that. They bought high quality credits. They're a lot more expensive. Here's what Gemini did. They said, this is how many coins, you can look it up on their website. They explain it beautifully. This is how many Bitcoin we owned over this period. This is how much carbon was produced over the same period. This is our percentage of all Bitcoin. Then they looked at how much carbon they were responsible for, their holding was responsible for, and it was like the same proportion of all mining as their proportion of Bitcoin and then they looked at how renewable the mix was in all mining, and they took their percentage of non-renewable, and then they estimated coal versus natural gas and its carbon intensity, and they came up with a carbon footprint. All correct by my accounting, all correct. And then their solution was to offset that carbon by planting trees, right? And it's like, no, the last step is you shouldn't be planting trees. I mean, that's fine. You should be mining uh, sustainably. Instead, like this, take responsibility for your share of all mining. Basically, you have 1% of all Bitcoin, do 1% of all mining, do it green. And they own part of Crusoe Energy, so, which is already sustainable, right? It's burning flared, it flared methane at oil sites. So I, they just need to figure out how much hash rate they need. Like say, they, say Crusoe is doing twice the hash rate that they need and they own half of Crusoe, they're done. And then they can say we're carbon neutral and they don't spend a penny on carbon offsets. So yes, uh, 
I, I, of course, I wrote to Gemini. They did they, they reply? No, because I'm because who am I? I'm just this all philosophy right, professor, right? right? I'll I'll text Cameron so, and Tyler later. I, I mean, I I I mean, once you see the accounting, and then you think like you don't have to limit it to to proportional. You could do double your share. You could mine twice as much of all hash rate as you own of of Bitcoin pretty easily because I haven't told you the actual numbers yet. So here's how cheap it is right now to do your share of mining, and it's because you know. Bitcoin as a whole is is whatever it is, $850 billion, $900 billion. I don't know what it is right now. I can't do the math in my head. But mining was only maybe $15 billion in revenue last year. So it takes very little mining to offset a lot of coin. And right now, on a quarterly basis, about 0.5% of your total investment in Bitcoin, if it's spent on mining, 0.5% per quarter is sufficient to green your Bitcoin. So you could do twice your share for only 1% of your total investment. I need to get you in front of Cameron and Tyler to talk about this. Yes. <laughs> yes, and it's not just them. It's Barry Silbert, right? I can do that as well. It's GBTC. It's not just that. It's, you know, it, it, it's that the Canadian ETF that's uh carbon negative. They do the same thing that that Gemini does. They they start by calculating the carbon footprint of the amount of Bitcoin they hold in the maintenance way, in the right way. And then they buy offsets to make it carbon negative. It's like, no, you don't need to do that. Just mine Bitcoin. Just mine it. Ah, <sighs> this is amazing. Okay, one more thing. Yes. If every okay, there's this hypothetical. If everyone were to mine Bitcoin in proportion to their holdings, the whole network would be green. Mm -hmm. As you say, retail people are not going to do that most of the time because it's just a pain. And, and some miners are going to still be mining, and they don't care. That's right. And and that's fine. I don't know. But you squeeze them out. It's the straw. It's the straw. You put I in know. the straw and you're squeezing them out. Yeah. Uh, or you're not even squeezing them. You're just changing the percentage. That's Michael right. Saylor would like this as well. And Michael Saylor's another one I want to talk to. It's like, yeah. Just yeah, leave it can, with me. So, so El Salvador. So I did, uh, I've got a paper that I wrote on, uh, is El Salvador's Bitcoin uh, carbon neutral? And I think it is. So they have how many Bitcoin do they have now? Mm, a few hundred. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> it's 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 it might be eighteen hundred now. Oh, really? When I wrote the paper, it was twelve hundred. Okay. So then I figured out hash rate wise what they would need to mine the same proportion of all mining as they own of all Bitcoin, and it's basically for every ten Bitcoin you own, you need one S nineteen Pro. It, it it lines up pretty cool like that. So I basically was like they need they needed at the time like hundred and twenty or hundred and forty S nineteen Pros. And then I looked at how would they actually have, and I, I can't see what miners they have, like what model they have, but they have well over 200 machines. And I assume they're close to the S19 Pro. So I think they're over, they're mining more of all mining with volcano power than they own of Bitcoin. So they are net carbon neutral and it doesn't interfere with their climate targets or anything, right? Their ownership of Bitcoin. And that's a model for other nation states. So yeah, not only do I want to talk to like these people, I want to talk to like All right, so listen, I'll set up a sovereigns, right? I'll set up a dinner. <laughs> like, I'll set up a dinner. I'll get Cameron and Tyler there. I'll get President Bukele. I'll get Barry Silver. I'll get Michael Saylor. Bukele's already there. He's yeah. already doing it. We'll get pupusas. Okay, this is fascinating. This is fascinating. We're gonna have to talk again. Um, there was like this all this other shit I wanted to talk to you outside of this. We're gonna get you. To, we're gonna we're going to Texas. We're gonna get Troy to Texas. Troy, have we missed anything? No, 
I mean, yes, everything, but... Okay, if people want to read more about this, is there a paper available? When's there a paper available? Yeah. I, I mean... This is a blow my mind, but I want other people to read yes. it and just like confirm to me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna literally get in the car and call Nick Card and say, Nick, is this legit? Well, Nick wrote a really nice piece in CoinDesk about yeah, it. I need to talk to Nick. But yeah, um, uh, you know, we have a paper. It's actually on Andrew Bailey's website. We need to talk to him. You need to talk to Andrew. Andrew is brilliant, and not only is he brilliant, he's good. He's a good person. Okay. His friendship has been a big part of my Bitcoin journey. Okay. Like you, you need to like Andrew's. I think we get the two of you together. He's deep. He's deep. He's a philosopher, and he's like not just an academic philosopher, but like philosophical soul. Okay. And uh, so there's a paper that we have. A uh, we originally we originally wrote before really talking to anybody about this. Um, it's at resistance.money slash green. You can find it there. It's just a Google Doc. I also have a spreadsheet. Thank I have a Google. I have like a Google spreadsheet. Can you get it and just like email it to me because I don't want to forget. I mean, this is an open source idea. Yeah. I had this idea. I don't want to monetize it myself. I want to share it with the world. Somebody's going to get rich from it or maybe many people because there's a product to be sold here. Mm. You could bundle. Yes, yeah, this is one more thing before we go. Someone like Fidelity, say, could could bundle or or Barry Silbert could uh, make a bundled product, which is green mining in proportion to Bitcoin wrapped into one thing, right? And then offer that as an ETF or some other investment vehicle. And then people don't have to like figure out how to match their their hash rate to their holdings. So it could happen with a like a retail product like that. I mean, the other thing that can happen is if you want perfect privacy and self-sovereignty, that you just use our calculator, some pleb island hodl, I don't know who he is, made made a nice calculator out of my spreadsheet and some API feeds. Okay. Right? So you can just calculate what is what kind of uh, hash rate should I be producing right now if I want to hold carbon neutral Bitcoin? How do people follow you? I'm at the TroCrow on Twitter. Okay. That's the place. Uh, this, is, this is amazing. Oh my God, I've loved this. Uh, we're gonna to have to talk again very, very soon. Thanks so much. No, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna to speak to some people and uh, I will be back and talking to you again very soon. Take care, Troy. Thank you, Peter. All right, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you wanna get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. <laughs>